This episode of the No Film School podcast is brought to you by Vimeo Live. Hi, everybody. This is Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. What happens when the community you're filming doesn't want you there? What if the community members have a religious taboo against being shown on camera? Taking it a step further, what if revealing your subject's face might put them at risk? And what if, even after considering all of these things, you still decided your story must be told? That is exactly the dilemma that faced celebrated documentarians Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady when they embarked upon their latest project, the Netflix original film, One of Us. In One of Us, the directing duo returns to the territory that garnered them an Oscar nomination in 2007 for Jesus Camp, extreme religious sects in America. In the new film, we travel far from the rural evangelical Christian summer camps of Jesus Camp to a very different world, the Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn, New York. The film focuses on three young people attempting to leave the community despite threats of retaliation. They're at different stages of separation, but each is struggling to join mainstream America after having been raised strictly following daily religious mandates, speaking Yiddish, and with virtually no secular education. Loser, who's been on his own for the longest, is trying to make a new life in Los Angeles. Teenaged Ari is battling trauma-based drug addiction, with one foot still in the community and the other foot out. And 30-year-old Etty is forced to make a Sophie's choice. To get away from her abusive husband through an arranged marriage, must she leave her seven children behind? The film is beautifully shot, with many frames composed in such a way that you feel the character's isolation from both the secular and the religious worlds around them. Because of sensitivities around their subjects and the community at large, Ewing Grady and their cinematographers Jenny Morello and Alex Takats had to develop all kinds of tactics and strategies for shooting very inconspicuously. I spoke with both the directors and DPs on the day of the film's New York premiere, and I think you'll enjoy our conversation about how they managed to film and craft such a sympathetic tale from within a notoriously closed community. Can you start by uh, each introducing yourselves? My name is Alex Tackett. I'm one of the co-cinematographers on One of Us. My name is Jenny Morello, and I'm also one of the co-cinematographers on One of Us. I'm Heidi Ewing. I'm the co-director of One of Us. It's such a treat to have you all here on the day of your theatrical premiere. I can't believe it. Thank you. Yes, we're very excited. In a few hours, we will um, be showing the film to the general public of New York City, otherwise known as the public the the public opinion the court of public opinion the court of public opinion right that and it's awesome. coming on netflix this week too right yes and it's on netflix so the public public the whole world yes but we really 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 love the public that's coming to the theater in la and new york because you know you make a film for the big screen with the big screen in mind we photographed it for the big screen and so it is wonderful that it's sort of uh, it's selling out in, in New York and hope the Los Angelinos will bear the 405 to come see it at the Santa Monica. For sure and Aww. I'm glad you brought that up especially because we have your two DPs here today and uh, it does look uh, very cinematic for a documentary so we'll get into that. First just for a bit of history I'm a longtime fan of you ladies and um, would just like to hear a little bit of background about your partnership and, and how it works. What does being a co-director mean? Being a co-director is always peaceful, there's always harmony, and it's always perfect. There's never any arguments. And um, 
just kidding. <laughs> um, it's great. We our collaboration is. It's really hard to put into words because it's really a moving target. We don't go on location together. People always want to know. Uh, we One of us goes on location with one of the cinematographers, usually. We set the look together. We cast the film together. We gain the trust of the subjects together so that they can reach out to either one of us. So it could be Heidi coming or Rachel coming, and they would be satisfied with that. So that's really important to us. Once that's been set, um, you know, we don't go on location together. So it's one director in the field, and we find that that works way better for the subjects, for the cinematographers, and also for the end product, because the person that wasn't in the field isn't attached to any material that was shot that day. They might have a, a, a more naked eye and just not be, you know, they'll just be more objective possibly on the material. The person who wasn't in the field also might catch something really special that the person in the field maybe missed or didn't think was very special at the moment. So for us it actually um, keeps the A, the a scenes in the movie um, so, because we're not all in love with the same material. So that, that's really helpful to us. And we can also be doing more than one project at a time in theory. On this one, we sort of dropped everything by the end, and we were only working on one of us because it really took both of our uh, creative energies and brain power to finish this movie and also took two editors. It was something about the film. It wasn't that there was a huge quantity of material. It wasn't more material than we've shot in the past. It was structuring the movie. It was all the limitations we were facing. It was a subject that didn't want to be seen then she did want to be seen. So we just, in the end, worked the final year um, of the movie just on that one project instead of multiple projects. And something else that happens through the process of making a film is, you know, at the beginning of a film, you think you know what the story is going to be somewhat. You know, I mean, you're, you can't be, you're not 100%. Of course, people's lives go in all different kinds of directions, but you sort of have some sort of hypothesis of which to start. You have to start somewhere, and you think, hmm, maybe this person, these are, these are five things that could happen, and then you just start following what actually happens. So Heidi and I are able to tell each other what, we think is happening and, and we can kind of, we can get a little bit deeper, I think, on the direction of someone's story and things to follow up with. And um, it's, it's just an, an incredibly helpful sounding board when you're actually following someone's story and you wanna make sure you're following the right one and not getting distracted or not holding on to something that's no longer true. So then I have to ask who had which role in this production I mean we had the same role I'd say I mean in terms of what we, we well, were always weird it depends on what the shoot was oh so it's not that one person is always in the field no. Oh, no, okay no no no. for we, each shoot we kind of we, we we take turns depending on schedule and um, I mean it's very organic if you met someone and you set up a shoot uh, then you will go ahead and follow up because Heidi never met that person. And our subjects, I mean, it's just, it's just very fluid. It's, it's very organic. But we each spend about half, half the shoots in the field, not with each other. And, for example, um, one of us will have an idea. Like if I have an idea that I'd really like to... This, this character mentioned that he has a treasure trove of material in a storage unit, for example, and he says it's, he's mentioned it a few months ago, and I keep meaning to go get it, and I really want to go get that. I'm going to get that this week. So I'd be the person to go do that shoot because it was something that he had told to me that came up again, and so I scheduled it and we shot that, for example, and vice versa. So that's kind of how, how it goes down. Um, and sometimes on films, one of us will have a stronger 
a relationship maybe with one of the characters and then that, that director will go out more often because we do whatever is best for the movie. It really, you have to put ego aside and all that aside and it's like, what, what will be the best person on this shoot today for the movie? Usually it's either of us is fine, but, but sometimes, you know, there'll be a pull one way or the other and, and, and we'll do that. It is very fluid and organic and in the edit room, you know, we had two editors on this movie. Sometimes we would split up and each work with one. Other times we would both be working with the same poor editor uh, that had both of our attention for different scenes. I mean, it really, uh, it, it just changes every time, to be honest. It's a bit of a moving target. So you mentioned casting, uh, which you both participate in. And in this film, it, it seems um, like casting wouldn't have been necessarily as obvious a, a process as in other films because it's not like you can just tell someone is ex-Hasidic when you pass them in the street mm -hmm. or something. So what was that process like? And also tell us about your characters. Sure. Well, we followed three people that were attempting to, in, in some way, exiting the Hasidic community and trying to transition into the secular um, community. And we were actually able to meet these people through an organization. So first we got access to an organization called Footsteps. And Footsteps helps these people. They're sort of an underground railroad for Hasidic people that are trying to figure out a way out um, with very limited exposure to people on the outside of the community. So they don't know anybody. And they haven't gone to the high schools that we go to. Often they don't speak English that well. And they're, they have just a lot of obstacles. So Footsteps is a place that they go to try and start. And we got access to Footsteps, which meant that we were able to introduce ourselves to their membership and try and find people that were already going there. So it was, it was a self-selected group of people that have, were trying to leave or thinking about leaving. Because you're right, you couldn't just see someone on the subway dressed in Hasidic garb and know, read their mind that they were unhappy. So that was our only way to actually meet people that were trying to transition out. Just to add something to that, um, it was tricky because um, the Hasidic community doesn't want to be photographed, uh, is uninterested in being photographed, being public, or sharing their stories, period. Maybe not surprisingly, a little surprising to us, people who had left the community also were, were didn't weren't that interested in being photographed um, because there is a natural suspicion, of course, of outsiders. And, of course, you are jumping into the unknown if you're a Hasidic person who's moving into the secular world. You have no cultural references. You're learning everything from scratch. You barely have uh, interacted with the opposite gender. And so, you know, they're uncomfortable. And so the casting process was really, really tricky because the people that really wanted us, wanted to be in our film, had been out for a long time or felt like everything was good and they had it all figured out and the movie would show that they're being successful. And of course, filmmakers, we want to tell a story. We want to make sure that the subjects are different in the third act than they are in the first. So you need a point of transition. You need a journey. And people who have been out for a long time perhaps aren't going to have that sort of dramatic uh, journey unfold in front of the camera. And so Rachel and I were looking for people that were going to have a transition, that were newly uh, leaving the community, preferably, but also were stable enough and emotionally stable enough to handle the attention that they were eventually going to get when the film comes out. Because you can tell someone over and over and over, listen, millions of people are going to see this, are you sure? But they don't really hear you. They don't understand what that's going to be like until 
the movie comes out. So we actually had to do a, a second level of like uncasting, which was to remove people that we thought were not going to be able to handle the pressure and that we're too fragile there's a lot of fragile people so it was like many layers of casting it was who we thought would tell the best story who was more comfortable on camera and who could handle the uh inevitable attention that's going to start happening today because the movie is in uh hundreds of countries as of today so it was it was a tricky tricky long process it took about six months uh, to really find our subjects, which is a little bit longer than we normally take. Well, this is a good segue <clears throat> into talking to your camera people because um, it was a sensitive subject, sensitive people, sensitive community. So I'm curious, even before you started shooting, what kind of conversations you all had about what it was going to take to film this doc? And maybe did you set any boundaries or kind of rules for yourselves about the shooting? Well, I think our very, very first shoot, we were shooting in a section of Williamsburg and we kind of just started shooting into this window because there are all of these reflections happening and no one knew what we were doing. Like they completely ignored us because we weren't pointing a camera at them. And I think that that kind of initially started this, mm -hmm. oh, if we're not pointing a camera directly at someone, then they don't actually know what we're doing. And it also started creating some quite beautiful like layering of, of imagery and you noticed like the nuances of people walking down the street more. So I think, I mean, that was just like the very first shoot. It, it definitely, that style uh, stuck with us and um, you know, it became about filming this community that um, is insular and is closed off from, from other people and from the outside. So, you know, what could we do to not stick out? And also what could we do to, uh, you know, minimize our, um, you know, impact on on them seeing the camera and, and reacting? And so all, you know, all films have limitations. There's hundreds and hundreds of limitations that you come across. And I think Jenny and Alex are describing a huge limitation of this film is that they don't want us there and they don't want, they don't care, this, this, the Hasidic community doesn't care very much about other people learning about them. They are the opposite of most American immigrants that want to assimilate. They want to, what's the word, decimulate? I don't know, if we can make it work. <laughs> Let's say they want to decimulate. They want to be left alone. So um, there is always a form and function and a feeling and a mood that's created in a film based on its limitations. For instance, in Detropia, it was a lot of open big vistas because it's a city that's empty. So how do you show a city that's empty? And you have to show the space and the lack of humans there. So in this film, we figured out very quickly what our limitations were, which is if you don't point the camera at someone, you'll get something. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if the camera is, if they see the lens, if they see the shine of the glass, people are going to scatter. So right away, you know, Jenny started filming into um, these big reflection, you know, reflections of windows. And it's this germ of an idea really started. And we, and we went with it for the next year and a half. 
And that included, um, you know, all of us, we love prime lenses. Everyone wants to use prime lenses. We have this nice glass and everything. We could use them sometimes. And when we could, we did, like the killer opening shot on the 14 millimeter. Um, but really, we had to get on that 70 to 200 all the time, sometimes with the extender, because the long lens became a very effective tool for us, uh, an essential tool for us, uh, which creates a real voyeuristic feeling in the movie, uh, which is also something that we thought was appropriate, since we are trying to re like crane your neck and glimpse into this world that's not accessible to us. So even with our subjects, that really also became an aesthetic that uh, made sense uh, and was functional. Yeah, I mean, it fits that we are, we realize pretty early on that we're outsiders and we're not, there's a certain amount of access that we're not going to get. Mm -hmm. um, and no. so, it, you know, we accepted that and then moved on and established that style of staying far back and, and not being on top of people. Well, and as I think Heidi mentioned, you literally had to conceal a, a character for part of the film. So how did you decide to go about that? What was your strategy? Well, um, <laughs> yeah, we tried lots. It was very difficult. I think that it was, Heidi once said, okay, shoot as much as you possibly can without showing her face. So the earring, like she had, she would wear this earring all of the time. Well, two earrings, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it was shoot the earring because it would, you would remember that and you would, see, someone would see that and it would, they would associate the earring with her or tucking her hair from behind mm -hmm. or seeing yeah. these little like things you do, right? Because your job as a cinematographer is to observe people and you begin to learn their the little things that they do, right? Like, you know, we all have little quirks that we do. So I think that was part of it, um, but also shooting as much possible material so that if there was a p possibility of having to protect her identity, that you could use that footage and you wouldn't know who she was. Yeah, I mean, one of the um, reasons that Etty agreed to be filmed and part of the project was that um, she agreed with the notion that she was going to be, um, she didn't feel comfortable being seen, you know, being known in the world. And so she wanted to be somehow concealed, whether it was animated or something. So we were tossing around animation in the beginning, and that required a bunch of different, something that I don't think, I haven't done before, I don't know if you've done before, shooting for animation, but, you know, we were shooting on sticks for a long time and trying all these different types of setups and styles and shooting, you know, her face one day and deciding the next day not to and well the problem was that we knew that at the time we thought we had to conceal one of our main characters but we didn't know how we didn't know how creatively we were going to do it we didn't know if it was going to be so we were, we were doing everything every time so which is challenging, right? I mean, you, you're like, okay, this is the five minutes we're going to focus on her hands. Okay, this is the time we're going to focus straight on her face because if we animate it this way, we need, we need this. And this is the time we're going to film her for a plate because we might use plates. So we, it, it, was, um, it was crazy making, not just because we had to hide, we were thinking we had to hide her, is that we didn't know how we were gonna hide her, so we were trying to um, give ourselves all these options, which 
actually the more options you have is the more it's more problematic and yeah it, it was terrible yeah. um it was really terrible it, it, it was it very it made everybody i think very anxious um including the cinematographers and the directors because you know if we were to do painting animation painting on live action it we found out soon that it had to be quickly we had to, we found out that you had to shoot on sticks for it not to cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. You have to put a scope to, for every frame to be painted. And so, you know, we started only doing that. And then, you know, thankfully we filmed enough of her face uh, that when she did decide that she was going to show her face, about a year into production, she changed her, her mind. We had to look at what we'd shot and figure out how are we going to do this? How are we to do this? How are we going to back into this? And so um, in the end, having done it in multiple ways was a blessing because we ended up using a lot of that material that we thought was going to be thrown away. Um, but it was a very um, discombobulating process that was uncomfortable for all of us. Uh, it really was. That particular subject, that character, we knew how to shoot everybody else. Um, but with Etty, it was it was it was a really interesting exercise. I have to say, I don't do not want to go through that again. But I think we all learned a little bit about all the options that do exist if you're talking about concealing somebody. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because I know our listeners will find that you know this very instructive and probably be a little maddened by it all. Vimeo Live is the latest innovation from our favorite video hosting platform. Now, you simply don't have to worry about running a low-quality live stream ever again. With Vimeo Live, you get pristine quality across all devices. You can broadcast your live events in full HD 1080p and enjoy built-in cloud transcoding so your viewers can watch it in stunning high quality, perfectly fit for their device and bandwidth. You're also sure to breathe easy thanks to reliable features and more controls. Share securely with privacy options, enjoy live chat support, and get more flexibility with RTMP without hidden overage charges. What's more, you can engage your audience from anywhere. Embed the player wherever you choose, see who's attending your event by enabling email capture in the player, turn on live chat, and view live and archive stats to track performance. Finally, Vimeo Live allows you to have one home for all your video needs. Get the best of Vimeo across your workflow for live and recorded videos. Manage and store in one place, replace archived videos with files in up to 4K, create review pages, and more. In an offer exclusive to the No Film School podcast listeners, Vimeo is offering 10% off live pro or live business accounts. Sign up using the promo code NFSLIVE. This discount offer expires 12-31-2017, is limited to one use per person, may not be combined with other offers, and will be applied to the first year of your subscription, after which time your subscription will automatically renew at the regular retail price each year until you cancel. So, of course, I have to ask, what did you shoot on? Because it looked beautiful. Um, we shot on a Canon C300 Mark II, um, mainly on the 70 to 200 EF lens. What else, Jenny? Um, we used the Zeiss CP2 Prime series. It was the 35, 85, and 50. Yeah. And then we had a 14 Prime Canon. Oh, yeah, the street shoot. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Sony A7S that sure. Alex took often. A couple instances where having a, you know, and the C300 isn't a, that big of a camera, but it's big enough to stand out. Um, there were a couple instances where having that camera um, on the street where there was, you know, let's, there's, a, there's a festival scene or, or 
a lot of different members of the community out, um, you know, having that, that large of a camera would stick out more. And so there's a couple instances where we took the Sony a7R2, um, which is, yeah, which allows, uh, you know, 4K shooting while looking through the viewfinder. So, um, you know, you can hold it up to your face and shoot 4K, which is special. And it's a still camera, so people think you're taking photographs. It's amazing the advances that have been made in such a short time. Even if you had shot some with an iPhone, you know, it could potentially pass. Were there any other tactics that you used to sort of conceal yourselves, or can you think of specific instances where you had to sort of get out of a situation that you were shooting? I think that something, well, so we have two DPs, and one is male and one is female, and I think that, if you want to count that as a tactic, um, sometimes it made sense for Alex to go out on his own with no women. Um, it, is, it is a um, gender-separated community, so there are literally places that women can't go and men can't go. Um, so we would try and be strategic about different shoots and when it made sense for Alex to go out lone wolf and when it made sense for either Heidi and I, who are both women, to um, go out with Jenny because sometimes it's an advantage to be two women um, because the men in the Hasidic community don't want to talk to women. So they would kind of leave us alone. So there was, you know, you always have to look where you're going to get the, you know, garner the best material depending on the situation. And in this case, that means, you know, splitting up the genders when it was helpful. Yeah, and one instance of that is there's a, there's a, a scene of a wedding in the film where um, I went with Ari. I was invited to go film this wedding with him. Um, and um, I don't know, you can notice in the, in the actual film, but, um, you know, the people who are dancing are all men. It's only men who are partaking in all of the festivity of it on the dance floor, um, and the women are kind of behind a partition, a partition so of some sort. So that would have been impossible, impossible for Jenny to film because she would have been the only woman on the floor. I mean, I wouldn't have been allowed. No. You wouldn't have been allowed. I would have kicked her out. Yeah. I mean, there's certain things that are completely segregated, and weddings are, are um, partitioned. So they don't even see each other. Women and men have completely different customs and um, different ways to celebrate um, marriages. So Alex shot a man wedding. Yeah, but also it, w it was sometimes handy to have, you know, if, if we were with Jenny on the street doing something, I mean, they, you know, for a religious man to approach a woman and talk to her is not kosher. And so... It was it's sometimes advantageous. We could get some shooting done and then leave before someone had the gall or the uh, chutzpah to approach us and tell us to leave. So, you know, we would play, we would try to use the gender bias to our advantage whenever possible. You talked about post-production. And this, I thought, I found the editing interesting because it wasn't exactly linear and in terms of time, and you didn't necessarily hit us over the head with this happened at this time and then this happened at this time, um, which uh, which was sort of useful in getting to know the characters in a way. Like I wasn't distracted by this like rigid timeline, but I was curious how long you filmed for and how you decided to let their stories unfold in post. Well, it took us about uh, a year of like development, uh, 
getting access, shooting, casting, and more or less two years shooting and editing because we were shooting while we were editing. And that was essential on this movie because, you know, luckily we you can't make this movie if you didn't live in New York City because we would be missing shots or something would jump off really quickly and a subject would text us and we would grab the camera and go. So it, it became essential to be shooting and editing at the same time because we could see all the gaps in the footage um, and, and that really helped us complete the story. Uh, I mean, the film is mainly chronological, I suppose. Um, we, we do, we jump backwards in time a couple, uh, a few times. I mean, what we're really, you know, it's like we're not that interested in sync sound and we're not interested in, that, in chronology in general, like in our films, you know. We're interested in shooting the, the face that is saying the most in a scene and that person might not be saying a word. So we're not interested in the camera moving from here to here. And it's just, you know, we, 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 this is a film about watching. Um, and the cinematographers were asked to become watchers and to do less and to find a shot and stay there, just like the Italians. In fact, we had them, we also we talked a lot about uh, Fuoco Amari, Fire at Sea, when it came out, which is in a tradition. Gianfranco Rossi did not invent the, the style in the film, but he executed it in a brilliant way, which is letting things happen in the frame, finding the frame and watching things come and go and be patient. And so, for example, there's a shot at the end of the film at a wedding and our character Ari is at a wedding, he's dressed nicely, he's wearing the yarmulke, it's an orthodox wedding, and he's standing outside of the circle. And in front of him is, is, is a circle of 100 men dancing and going in circles over and over and over and over again. And that shot, um, Alex stayed on that shot for like six minutes, if you look at the material, um, because that was the shot. It was how this person is reacting to being in, a, in an orthodox situation again after he tried to leave, did leave, didn't leave, one foot in, one foot out. And the ultimate image there is how does he feel in this place? He's not in the circle, he's outside the circle. And all the action is happening in front of his eyes. Is he going to join? Is he going to dance? Is he going to leave to go have a cigarette? What's he going to do? That is the big question of that scene. There is no reason to shoot anything else. That's the question. Because at that time in the movie, you're like, is he going to stay? Is he going to go? And this was like a met metaphorical shot of, of that question. And so things like that for us, that's what we're, we're interested in. Not really when did this happen. and was it, You know, things are loosely, they're pretty chronological in the movie. We didn't do any tricky things. But, um, but we would have. You know what I mean? Because we're trying to a ask and answer some existential questions about identity in the movie. And the cinematography, the editing, the, sh the, um, the music, Everything was in service of answering those questions in a cinematic fashion. And that's one example of, of, of something that worked in the movie. That's one of my favorite shots in the film, and Fire at Sea is my favorite movie of last year, so I love, appreciate both references. Me too. <laughs> Me too. And we talked about that film and watched that film. Uh, that was a very important uh, touchstone to us because it was a documentary that was shot like a feature in a patient-watching style, and that was inspirational to us because it can be done. Well, listeners can read my interview with Gianfranco Rossi on No Film School, and he talks exactly about this letting things happen in the frame. That is a very Italian tradition all the way back. That is from neorealism forward and I love it I love it love it love it so a final question for you co-directors and maybe you all have some thoughts on it too um, I'm sure you've been asked this before but how do you tell a story like this that surfaces some ugly truths of a spe specific community without maligning the entire community well you have to be 
you think about it the whole time, and you have to root the film very strongly in the point of view of your subject, which um, it was, this film was a very, very intimate journey with three people, and we, I, I feel like it's very clear that it's from their point of view. In addition to that, we made sure to include all of the warm exchanges and um, longing and homesickness that they all felt towards the community, even though they had decided to leave. And there's a reason they missed all those things. So we, we want to definitely um, uh, indicate to the audience that this was not, this is not black and white. And to say an entire community to malign a total uh, entire community, that is black and white. And none of this stuff is black and white. It's, it's gray. So we have to stay in the gray. We have to stay in the gray so that people understand that these things are messy and they're not, there's not good guys and bad guys. It's, you, you, you can't, this is, this is real life where everybody's a little bit, a little bit murky. Well, thank you everyone so much and best of luck with the film. Oh, thank you. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you for listening. You can catch one of us on Netflix now. Meanwhile, you can also hear lots of other fascinating conversations on the art of filmmaking by finding the No Film School podcast in iTunes or by visiting nofilmschool.com. Make sure to subscribe in iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app so you can catch our Indie Film Weekly News show, which comes out every Thursday morning and fills you in on everything you might have missed when we were busy making films. Meanwhile, stay in touch. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at No Film School. See you soon.